Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, for those who don't know, my name is Ephraim. I'm privileged to be one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel, South London, and I'm blessed to be um, giving you our next installment in the Marriage Matters series. Um, last week, I proceeded to um, address the issue of divorce. Um, today, we're going to be furthering our considerations as we consider the issue of remarriage. As we consider the issue of remarriage. And is the issue of remarriage, specifically of those who have been divorced, beyond God's grace? And that's the question I ask. Is the issue of remarriage for those who have been divorced one that sees them in a place where they are beyond God's grace? So before we seek to answer that, if you'd permit me to pray. Let's go to the Lord. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you this afternoon for your, for this morning, for your tremendous faithfulness and grace toward us. We thank you for the enduring and indelible statement um, that is pictured to us in the cross, that is communicated to us through the cross and also resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We recognize that the death and resurrection of our Lord has eternal verberations, not just historic, not just futuristic, but eternal reverberations. And for all who believe it is the way to life. We thank you because before the cross we are convicted of our sin and yet encouraged of our hope, which is in you. You are our hope. Thank you for redemption through the cross. Thank you for the great news of the gospel. Thank you for the fact that your great news as we receive it with repentant hearts, believing and trusting in Christ, our lives are changed and transformed. Our lives are transformed and we become a new creation in Christ Jesus with new hearts, new ideals, new values, new perspectives and new lifestyles. Thank you for the presence of your spirit who indwells us, enabling us to walk in your way. Be glorified among us as we turn our hearts to your word, we pray. Give us ears to hear for your glory. Amen. Now, thankfully, I'm able to encourage you as we start. Um, I mentioned that community group that um, although we would hear statistics that would ordinarily say that divorce in the church is just as bad as in the world, I, I am happy to be the bearer of glad news. Divorce in the church is not just as bad as in the world, and no, it's not worst. It is actually considerably, considerably better, and I think it's important that we understand that because we can so often just have an attitude of discouragement when it comes to marriage and particularly divorce in the context of the church. So many will have heard the statistic, um, one in two marriages fail, even in the church. And we've been known to use that statistic here ourselves. But there is a lady, um, and her name is Shanti Feldhan. And um, she's a, a researcher and statistician. And she was simply setting about to, to clarify that very common statistic that is shared. To um, look into the, the, the source of it, she, she, by profession, worked on Wall Street in the States and um, knows how to do um, major statistical research. And um, her endeavor was to look into it and say, okay, let's just kind of clarify where this comes from. And in her search, she found that actually, <laughs> it's not even that... The, 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 the statistics are wrong. 
or poorly founded, they were just completely unfounded. And so she's written this book called The Good News About Marriage and basically um, talks about the fact that the common marriage statistics that we hear touted about uh, are basically a myth. They, they have no basis whatsoever. The main person, she spoke to the main person who was being quoted as the source of these statistics. And the person said, I've been trying to get my name removed from those statistics for years because I never said that. And so we see that there's a good deal of propaganda going on when it comes to affecting people's perception of Christian marriage. Things are not as bad as they say. And even with that in mind, we appreciate that actually things are much better. So they say that at worst, the statistic is um, one in four. But that's based on a very general interpretation of what it means to be Christian. But where they actually, you know, she went on to do further surveys and research. It's taken her eight years to produce this. She was very thorough. And she said, where they actually were more, more strict in their definition, not just somebody who says they're Christian, especially in the states where this research was done, most of the population say they're Christians. But as a basic test, were you in church last week? They found that the statistics halved again. And so, fundamentally, you're looking at about one in ten marriages in the church amongst those who apparently are actively following Christ actually may result in divorce. And so things are not dour. The Bible is true. It does make a difference to people's lives. It does make a difference to people's marriages. Amen? Praise God. So... Having established that, we spoke last week and appreciated a few principles. One, Christians should not seek a divorce. Christians should not seek a divorce. And that was communicated clearly in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. Christians should not seek a divorce. But they can, under certain conditions or under certain circumstances. So, shouldn't but can may sound contradictory. God's intent for marriage was always that it would be an enduring testimony of his love for his people. That it would be lasting. In fact, God never even introduced the idea of divorce. It being so far removed from his intention. And yet what God has done is he's accommodated, and we'll talk more about this later. We see in Jesus' statement in Matthew 19, Moses permitted, he allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, because of sin, because of the fallen, broken nature in this fallen, broken world, it's evident that people do not remain faithful to God. People don't remain faithful to God. And so therefore, divorce became something which may be considered a necessary evil. In the same way that a child should never have to report their parent for abuse. It's unthinkable. It should never happen. And yet, there are times when they have to. And they can do so if they need to. We understand that there are two legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. Adultery and abuse. And abuse encompasses Active abuse by way of physical and emotional abuse being inflicted upon a person, but also passive abuse being abandonment and neglect. 
So these are biblical grounds for divorce. What about remarriage? What about remarriage? Having been divorced, can a person be married again? Let's um, revisit our fictitious couple of last week. Brother Frank and Sister Tammy. Remember them? Have I changed their names? (laughs) So what was it then? It was definitely Sister Tammy. Tina. All right, well, that's, that's even better. So let's start afresh. We're going to go with Brother Frank and Sister Tammy. Was it Frank last week? Oh, no, I can't work with Frank then. Give me another name. Someone who's... Not, is, who? No, 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 no. Bob. All right, Bob. Bob. Okay, so you've got Bob and Tammy. Yeah? Our fictitious couple for this week. And they are both Christians. They've been Christians for some years. And their, their, their marriage um, has gone through difficult times. And it's reached the worst of times to the point where Tammy has had enough. Tammy? You still on Tammy? Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Tammy has had enough and she divorces Bob. She divorces him. And yet she wants to be Married again sometime later. Is it a fair consideration for her to have that she can be married again? How would you counsel her if she was your friend asking for your godly advice? Well, let's consider that. There are those who would say, No remarriage. No remarriage apart from the death of a spouse. Now, the Bible is quite explicitly clear on this matter that someone is able to be remarried after the death of a spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Quite straightforward. The commitment to the marriage only exists as long as the partner lives. And this is true for both men and women, not just for wives. At which point, there is freedom for the, the widowed spouse or the widower, male or female, to be remarried only in the Lord. And um, just as a side note, especially for all of you who have ever been, who are single and ever been tempted to consider a relationship with someone who's not a Christian, this verse speaks to you also. Because what's true for the widowed person is true for all single, single people because the widow is now single and shares the same status as all single people. So do recognize that if you ever feel tempted to marry this person, to develop a relationship with this person who is not a Christian, the word of the Lord says only in the Lord. Amen? So some would say there's no remarriage except after the death of a spouse. They would even say, you know what, God hates divorce. And therefore, we see that remarriage after divorce isn't an option. And so their advice to Sister Tammy would be, you have no option at all to be remarried. You have to remain single. 
Well, for those of you who've done your homework that I said last time, shall I, can I get a show of hands if you've done your homework? <laughs> Some of you weren't here, so you're all right. The rest of you are in detention. <laughs> Malachi 2.16 is a very difficult verse to translate. And so when you look at that verse, and if you haven't done, I encourage you to do so, look at that verse in four translations, one of which must be the NIV, and one of which must be the New King James. I think I said ESV last time. But look at, look at it in four translations. You will see that that is a very difficult verse to translate. In one translation, it says God hates divorce. In another translation, it says the man who hates and divorces. And in another translation, it doesn't even mention the word hate at all. When we see a situation like that where there's variance, where there's difference in the translations of, of, of a text in our English Bibles, the primary thing we have to do is be very humble about how we assert what this verse says. We cannot be dogmatic and pig-headed and say, no, it says God hates divorce, because we're actually sharing in the struggle of scholars who spend their time like they're paid for a living to understand the original languages and work out what it's saying. <coughs> they do so with the intent to glorify God and be faithful to the text. It's not as if it's some conspiracy to undermine the scriptures. When we look at the context of Malachi 2.16, we appreciate that actually God is railing against illegitimate divorce. He's railing against the unfaithful, hard-hearted individual, man in this case, who would turn around and say, I'm finished with you. Our understanding of this verse is also affected by what we see stated in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, and in other places, that God himself is a divorcee. God himself is a divorcee. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. This is God speaking. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel... I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. And so God is clearly stating that he initiated and executed divorce of the northern tribes of Israel because of their spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. God hates divorce. Well, let's consider what divorce is, understanding that God is a divorcee. <clears throat> One of the things that we appreciate when we ask what is divorce is this. Divorce indicates that a sin has been committed. Divorce indicates that a sin has been committed. Now, that sin may be adultery, it may be abuse, or it may be the execution of an illegitimate divorce. So as we go back to Sister Tammy and Brother Bob, Sister Tammy has decided to leave Bob and serve papers and divorce him. Well, is she right to do so? Not according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. So, you know what? I mean, we kind of even overlook this statement. We overlook this statement. The wife should not separate. Actually, it's not even just that Christians shouldn't divorce. They shouldn't even separate. Is that not what the text says? 
Now, again, although this speaks specifically of the wife, it is principle for both male and female. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. So even in separation, it's not as if somebody as Christians should come to a place where they say, okay, you know what, we're going to separate and um, I'm happy to stay single. You happy to stay single? Okay, we just mutually agree that we're, we won't divorce because God hates divorce, right? So we'll just stay separate and single. No, the goal should be reconciliation. The goal should be to come back together. And so separation should only be a means to an end, which is to bring about a rectification of the issues so that reconciliation can take place. And a husband should not divorce his wife. Again, true for male and female in Christ. So not separate, seek to be reconciled and should not divorce. Sister Tammy filing papers on her husband Bob with with no grounds, no biblical basis, is now in sin. She has just effected an illegitimate divorce and is now in sin. Now we understand that the reality is fundamentally divorce is the formal recognition of the breaking of the marriage covenant. Divorce is the formal recognition of the breaking of the marriage covenant. You see, a a divorce always indicates that a sin has been committed. Whether it's someone has been adulterous and broken the marriage covenant, has been abusive and has broken the marriage covenant, or has illegitimately broken the marriage covenant without grounds. Divorce is the formal recognition. It's true. God did not initiate divorce, but he accommodated and regulated it. He accommodated it and regulated it. And God having done that, in compassion towards sinful people, therefore helps us to appreciate and understand, and we'll see this unpacked in a minute with some verses of scripture. Legitimate divorce is not a sin before God. Divorce on biblical grounds is not a sin. Although it indicates or acknowledges or recognizes that a sin has been committed. Now we'll see that remarriage is permitted on the grounds of a legitimate divorce. Remarriage is permitted on the grounds of a legitimate divorce. Knowing the Bereans that you are, you're not going to be satisfied with an unqualified statement like that. And so, turn with me to Matthew, and we'll see what Jesus said in the first instance. Matthew chapter 19. Looking at verses 3 to 9. You'll remember we looked at this last week. The Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Key words. They were testing him on a specific, debatable, hot topic. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female 
and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? (coughs) They misquoted Deuteronomy there because Moses didn't command. Moses permitted a certificate of divorce to be given. But he didn't command divorce to take place. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so we see, Jesus states in this conversation that there is a clear exception when it comes to divorce, giving biblical grounds for divorce. And so he's saying, divorce, except for sexual immorality, causes the one who marries another to commit adultery. What we therefore understand quite plainly is this, that if somebody divorces on the basis or on the grounds of sexual immorality, then they are permitted to marry another because it's not constituted as adultery. Otherwise, there would be no point for the exception. Divorce frees a person from the obligation of their commitment to another by way of their marriage vows. And Jesus is saying here, except for sexual immorality, someone who marries another commits adultery. Therefore, if it's on the basis of sexual immorality, it's not adultery. That was clearly understood. Um, Let's consider what Paul says about this matter. 1 Corinthians 7. I'll start from 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul is speaking to Christians. To the rest, I say, I am not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so we see here, Paul stating that there is legitimate basis for somebody to be freed from their marriage commitment in the instance that They are with an unbelieving partner who does not want to be with them anymore because of their Christianity. And so we see the term there, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Some translations say not bound. This says to us that the person is able to be freed from their 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 vowed commitment, which would have to happen by way of divorce. And in order to truly not be enslaved, they would then have to be free to marry again. Otherwise, they are hostage to that relationship. They are still bound to that relationship. If they're not free to marry again, then what are they free to do? 
Actually, if we consider what Paul has said previously, we understand that Paul recognizes a difference between divorce and separation. He says that in verses 10 and 11. He says that the wife should not separate, the husband should not divorce. Two separate words that are used there. If somebody is not free to remarry after a legitimate divorce, then what they've experienced is nothing less than a separation. The divorce has no point whatsoever. They might as well be separated because they can be separated and remain single. They don't need a divorce to do that. So what difference does a divorce make? The divorce formally acknowledges their separation and also acknowledges the individual's freedom to go on and marry again. Now, is this consistent? If we want to kind of look back throughout the Old Testament and understand, is this some kind of nouveau new covenant ideal that's being presented here? Or or was this something that was supported in the Old Testament? Does this have any rooting and grounding in the foundations of our faith? Categorically, it does. So, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. I mentioned last week that this is a matter of Hebrew case law where it presents a situation from which principles are able to be established and applied to other situations. When a man takes a wife and marries her, actually I should give you the whole section. We're looking at verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, note that, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, this text is hard to work with. This text is hard to understand. So you've got a man, let's call him um, Levi. No, let's think of another tribe. (laughs) I always try and avoid names that are known amongst our our family. Um, Let's think of another tribe. Um, Manasseh, right? So you've got Manasseh, and he's married to his wife. We just call her Mrs. Manasseh because I can't be bothered to try and think of another name. And he's like, you know what? I don't want to be with you anymore. I'm going to write you a certificate of divorce declaring that we are no longer husband and wife. And I'm going to send you out. And so he sends her out. And another man marries her. First of all, we see that No issue is taken by the fact that she has been married by someone else, even though she was divorced. Note that. The accommodation. And then she marries someone else. And having Mrs. Originally Mrs. Manasseh, now Mrs. Ephraim, just use my name, why not? And She now is Mrs. Ephraim, and he either divorces her or dies. 
Notice, divorce is set, aside, set alongside death as a legitimate release from the relationship. If Mr. Manasseh comes back and wants to marry her again, he's not allowed to. It doesn't say that anyone else is not allowed to. Mr. Manasseh is not allowed to. Now, if you're going to ask me why is that, that's off topic. That's not really the point, and it's very hard to explain. Come community group and I'll, I'll break that down for you. Incentive. <laughs> but fundamentally, no issue is taken with the fact that she's going to marry again, apart from the fact that it can't be to her original husband. We see here on two occasions, not just once, you know, twice, Mrs. Manasseh is at liberty to marry again. Okay, so that's Deuteronomy. Um, look with me now at Ezekiel. In fact, no, Leviticus, just to keep you in the, the thick of the law. Leviticus chapter 21. <clears throat> we'll look at verse 7 and then also verses 13 and 14. This is instructions to the priests. It says that the priest shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. Verses 13 and 14. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people. So the priest is being told who he can marry. And as he is being set apart as holy from amongst the people with a different set of standards from the people, one of the things he's being told that he can't do is marry a divorced person. But that's not all. He's not only told that he's not able to marry a divorced person, he's not able to marry a widow either. So it's not because the divorced person was particularly bad. There was a deeper reason. Quite simply... The, the priesthood, the line of the priesthood had to, be remained, had to be held as pure, clear, and distinct. A priest could only be the son of a previous priest. A priest could only be the son of a former priest. And so in order to avoid any confusions with regards to stepchildren, because if somebody's a widow, they could already have children, right? And those children become the priests. Does that now make them eligible to become priests? Does the, 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 the children of a divorced person, do those stepchildren now become eligible to become priests? What if the prostitute has children? So, in order to retain clear lines of progression of the priesthood, he was only to marry someone who was a virgin without child. So it wasn't a, 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 a statement against people marrying divorced spouses, priests marrying divorced women. In fact, it's, it more clearly suggests, it more clearly implies that this was something that was commonly done and the priest was being exempted from. So the priest was being exempted from what other people commonly do for the reasons that I've given. Similarly, in Ezekiel 44.22, and I'll just read it. Um, affirming the same point. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel, 
or a widow who is the widow of a priest. You notice that last phrase. Again, affirming the fact that the issue wasn't about divorce, it was about progression of the priestly line. So, remarriage after divorce was not something that the people of Israel in the time of Christ were not familiar with. They were very familiar with it. Actually, they were too familiar with it because they were divorcing just for any reason, just so they could marry someone else, just so they could have a better situation. And so Jesus wasn't loosening standards. He was tightening the reins when he said, if one divorces for any other reason apart from sexual immorality, and marries again, they commit adultery. Remarriage is permitted on the grounds of a legitimate divorce. What about an illegitimate divorce? Is remarriage permitted then on the basis of an illegitimate divorce? Hmm. Well, before I answer that, and in order to clarify the answer to that, let's just consider, and I touched on this previously at community group, but it's necessary that I mention it again. When it comes to the matter of divorce, even if an individual feels that they have legitimate grounds, the Bible has prescribed, the Bible has prescribed a course of correction that the individual is to take their offending partner through. Sister Tammy should not be just turning around Monday morning end up at the solicitors ready to sign papers of divorce and file them on her husband. That's never supposed to happen for someone who's a Christian. Under any circumstances, there is supposed to be a course of correction followed. So in Matthew chapter 18, we see God's course of correction outlined. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. So this is stage three, right? Tell it, to the, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two, are th two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I'm going to slaughter some sacred cows out here today. Hmm. Let, me, let me build up to that. So, we see three stages. You go to the individual, you reason with them. If they won't hear you, you take two or three witnesses and you go and you speak to them formally and, and you try and resolve the issue. If they are still unrepentant, you bring it to the church, i.e. the elders. And Paul is, elaborates and, is, and um, clarifies this in 1 Corinthians 5. You bring it to the church, i.e. the elders, and the elders are then given Christ-ordained authority to pronounce... Sin or not? 
if a person is unrepentant, that lack of repentance is to be recognized and they are supposed to be put out like a Gentile and a tax collector on the basis that God says, whatever you recognize to be sin on earth, I will back that from heaven. I.e., whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. God will honor the sanction of the eldership as authorized by him, speaking by his spirit in his name. Now, first sacred cow, binding and loosing. If you anything like me, binding and loosing had a completely different meaning. Because that became all about territorial spirits in the heavenlies. And so, from the context, work with me people, from the context... Is there actually any chance that this has got anything to do with demons in the heavenlies? Okay, so that cow's dead, right? This is about the administration of the Lord's authority in the congregation of God. The people of God, the church of God, amen? Okay. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever Somebody's repentant. You declare them... I don't even want to use the absolved word because that sounds kind of Catholic. I absolve you, my son. But you declare them freed, released from the shame and the stigma that is associated with their former sin. Where two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, sacred cow number two. How many times have I, I won't even say you, how many times have I, have I, hi, you know, <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks. <laughs> how many times have I, come agree with me, brother, because I really need this job, you know, stand in agreement with me, because you know that anything that two or three of us agree on, the Lord, that's got nothing to do with, nothing to do with it. Some of you had beef with God because you stood in agreement and it never happened. And you're like, but God, your word says. No, you were misinformed. That was a misinterpretation. Text taken out of context is a mad text. It has no basis, grounding, or true meaning if it's taken out of context. This is, again, about those speaking of the eldership of the the, the community of God coming together and agreeing concerning God's will based on his word, by his spirit, rightly dividing the truth, making a decision in agreement. The Lord says, I'm there and I back it. So, this is the course of correction that one ought to go through even before there's any consideration of divorce. So, pause for thought. One of the things we see in this is that if you are in a marriage that's having grave problems, you ought to seek help. You ought to seek help. Don't make unilateral decisions based on the hardship of the situation the emotional turmoil of the situation without you yourself going through due process. Follow the course of correction. And it's very important because that course of correction can help establish any further action to be legitimate or illegitimate. And it has impact. 
In the case of Sister Tammy and Brother Bob, let's say Sister Tammy went through the course of correction and Brother Bob was unrepentant because she had good reason. He may have committed adultery, he may have committed adultery a number of times. And she's gone through the course of correction. At that point, the church are able to put Brother Bob out as an unbeliever. And what that does is that changes the status of that relationship. Therefore, bringing us into the context of 1 Corinthians 7.15. Because Brother Bob has been put out as an unbeliever by way of church discipline, Tammy now has a choice, which in in our frame of reference as elders, we're going to encourage her to take slowly. But she now has a choice as to whether or not she wishes to divorce her partner on the basis that Brother Bob doesn't want to be with her and Brother Bob is no longer a brother. But church discipline has identified him as an unbeliever. We'll unpack this further at community group. can only do so much up here. So... That changes the dynamics, that changes the status of the relationship, and that frames the the context of any further action with regard to divorce. But it still begs the question, what about an illegitimate divorce? Now, can someone remarry after an illegitimate divorce? The answer is... Now, if you know me long enough, you ain't going to be surprised to see that answer. The answer is no and yes. No and yes. If someone divorces, as a Christian, divorces their spouse without biblical grounds and are unrepentant, Jesus says that if they go on to marry again, they commit adultery. And so they're not to marry again. And if they do, they further compound their sin. And the church is to have no part in marrying them. Because the person is in sin and unrepentant, having violated their covenant. And so the answer is no in that case. Where there is no repentance, for that individual to go on and marry again would cause them to further commit sin, which the church is not going to advocate endorse or play any part in. Now what may surprise you is that there is a yes aspect to this. Because if you were anything like me, any kind of notion of an illegitimate divorce would suggest there's no way under heaven or on earth that someone could be married again after being involved in an illegitimate divorce. That would be to suggest that divorce is unforgivable. Divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. So let's rewind. Sister Tammy, Brother Bob. Before they were Sister Tammy and Brother Bob, they were Tammy and Bob. And Tammy divorced Bob. She then became a Christian. She became a Christian, Christian some years, walking with the Lord. And as the the church have received her into, into fellowship, received her into membership, they've observed keenly the fact that there is fruit in her life. So, John the Baptist... In Matthew chapter 3, 
can't find the reference. But in Matthew chapter 3, he has the scribes and the Pharisees come to be baptized. And he turns to them and he says, who told you to run from the wrath that's to come? Go and bring forth fruit of repentance. Go and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So John the Baptist refused to baptize them on the basis that their life contradicted their profession. And it was necessary that there be some consistency before he would baptize them. Fruit must be produced and proven. Sister Tammy, she brings forth fruit in keeping with repentance. There's evidence that she's truly turned away from sin and Christ is truly her Lord. Some years now she meets someone sitting down and marriage begins to be talked about. But she divorced Bob before she was a Christian mind. She comes to you for counsel. You know what? I've met this really great guy and um, he loves the Lord and he loves me and um, there's a possibility of marriage but am I even able to get married? What would you say? Like, I mean, I, I, I divorced my husband. I divorced my husband and I ran off with another man furthermore. So, am I even able to be married? At that point, I would imagine that there is no part in you that's going to say, well, you know, it was an illegitimate divorce. And even though you weren't a Christian, hmm, it can't happen. I'm sorry to have to tell you, Sister Tammy, that you cannot ever be married. But I thought Jesus forgives sins and he makes us new and I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. That was the old person. I'm a new person. Doesn't that count for anything? Well, the answer is that she's right. I don't know a, 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 a church in the world that's saying to somebody who was once divorced as a non-Christian that they can no longer be married now that they've become a Christian. So we recognize that the blood of Christ atones for sin. He does make new. He's renewed her status in Christ. And therefore, she is able to be married. Now, is God partial? Is God such that actually the person who was divorced before they were a Christian can now marry but the person who's sinned as a Christian and divorced cannot remarry, even though they've acknowledged their sin, even though they've repented of their sin, even though they've brought forth fruit in keeping with that repentance? Or are we saying that God is a respecter of persons? See, the blood of Christ atones for our sin. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool, made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I just love that last verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected, completed for all time those who are being, present tense, sanctified. So Jesus has paid for the sins of the believer once and for all. Once. He's not coming back to do it again. He's done it once and for all sin that we may commit throughout time. 
We have tremendous assurance in Christ Jesus. Whilst at the same time, we are also being sanctified. And so, in the instance of somebody who, as a Christian, illegitimately divorced, in an unhurried and thorough fashion, that person is to be counseled and supported, and they are to be considered as to whether or not they truly understand their sin and own it, whether or not they actually are genuinely repentant with accompanying fruit. If there's been a work of sanctification to the point where the elders, as we read in Matthew 18, can loose that person, can affirm the repentant fruit being outworked in their life and be able to say, Amen. God has clearly dealt with this issue in the life of this individual. So in the case of the repentant, there is opportunity through means of due process for an individual to remarry. Now there's much more that can be said about that. But the thing I would highlight inviting you again to join that community group on Thursday. The thing I would highlight is this. There is only one sin that is beyond the grace of God. Jesus referred to that as the unpardonable sin. And that fundamentally is to deny the Messiahship of Christ evidenced by God's Holy Spirit at work in the life of Christ. Fundamentally to deny Jesus to attribute the evidence of Christ's Messiahship that is manifested by the Holy Spirit as being of some other demonic source. Fundamentally, the unpardonable sin is to deny Christ. Now, that doesn't come as a surprise to any of us because we know that those who deny Christ will perish in their sins. So there is no pardon. But that's the only sin. And that doesn't mean that sins don't have consequences. Somebody commits murder. They go to prison just because they become a Christian. It doesn't mean all of a sudden they're going to be freed. And yet, there is to be restoration and renewal in the life of the Christian, where sin occurs. In support of and affirmation by the leaders. So the whole issue of church discipline takes a whole other level. And it just reaffirms the importance of it in our lives as a church. So Christians are not to divorce. They may divorce where there are legitimate biblical reasons for it. There is the opportunity for remarriage where a legitimate divorce has been entered into. There's no remarriage for the unrepentant divorcee. And yet there is in due time for the repentant divorcee. We give thanks and praise to God for his redeeming work in Christ, giving hope to all people. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. Sometimes, Lord, we need to labor. We need to apply effort, as you have said in, um, from Paul to Timothy, in rightly dividing your word. 
And yet, Lord, we know and appreciate that you are faithful to uphold your word and you instruct us to apply your word faithfully. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would help, that you would help us as your people, that you would help us, Lord, to be submitted to you, that, Lord, we wouldn't be haters, that we wouldn't be covenant breakers, Lord, that, Lord, we would remain faithful by your spirit, that, Lord, we would follow due process where there's problems, that, Lord, we would call upon you and seek to allow your institution to fulfill its purpose of being a picture of your love for your bride. Help us, Lord, there's been a lot said today. Help us to to just meditate on it, to go over it, and to allow you to continue to enlighten our understanding as we work with your word. find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.